your Bible to the book of Titus. We're going to be looking at Titus, focusing on chapter 2, but to give you some context, I want to begin back and dip into Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. We're going to read through chapter 2, verse 8. So let's look at God's Word together. Titus chapter 1, read with me in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of his own, said, Cretans are always liars, empty beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both these, their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. And as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that any opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So Thomas Jefferson primary author of the Declaration of Independence and our nation's third president, on two occasions decided that the New Testament needed an edit. And he explained his actions in a letter that he wrote to John Adams, the second president of our country, as he explained, in exacting the pure principles which he taught, we should have to strip off the artificial vestments in which they have muffed they have been muffed by priests we must reduce our volume to the simple evangelists select even from them the very words only of Jesus tearing off the amphibolisms whatever that means into which they have been led listen to this there will be found remaining the most sublime and benevolent code of morals that has been offered to man. And he did this to extract from the Bible the supernatural elements of Jesus' public ministry so that the only thing that would then be remaining would be the moral teachings of Christ. So after he finished those edits, what remained for Jefferson was a 46-page cut-and-pasted version of the Gospels, which he entitled, 
published in 1820, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, which is now referred to as the Jefferson Bible. And then in his letter to Adams that I've already alluded to, he explained his method that he went through for his edit. I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter, which is evidently his, speaking of Jesus, and which is easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. Thomas F. Jefferson had moments of great contribution for our country's founding, and can I just say, this was not one of them. And I shared this with you to get you ready to receive what I have for you this morning as I address the next church matter, because whether intentionally or unintentionally, I fear that our modern-day expressions of church ecclesiology and ecclesiology is a doctrinal term that just means doctrine of the church. I fear that we have done much of the same thing to the text that I've already read this morning and that we've left it out of our understanding of the church. It is an immensely beautiful thing when we see the church, the bride of Christ, reflect the intergenerational beauty of what God has given us as we gather together. But what I see too often is not this. It's rather when we bring the church together, we justify all the reasons why we need to keep all the generations separated. We assume sometimes that the most effective strategy to reach people without Christ is to bring them into a place that they can be with people who are just like them of age and of experiences and all that kind of thing. We think that it's a lot less messy to have worship services that are titled by the style of music that is played in the service, and then you offer different ones to keep everyone somewhat satisfied with their own difference of music and their difference of preference, and we keep everyone divided out in these services. We rarely call people to grow and serve alongside of one another who come from different places in life and different stages in life. And while I completely understand that there is something necessary and needed in having a shared relationship with people who are in a common place in life and in a similar location as where we might be, there is something wrong if that's all we ever do. I was reading a commentator on these verses of Titus chapter 2, and as he was writing on how to apply them, he stated, and listen, Somehow, the church must see that younger women have contact with older women, which by the context of the entirety, if you carry that out, he would also agree. Somehow, the church must also find a way for older men to live in contact with younger men. But there seems to be something terrifying or, or dissatisfying, terrifying maybe, if it's not outside of the will of God, but it's something that's dissatisfying in this, isn't it? So somehow is the best they had to offer is if there's no clear pathway for such interaction, coming together. And this morning, I wish I had all the pathways marked out for us. 
that's what you're hoping to hear, I'm afraid I'm going to leave you somewhat disappointed because while I think we have blazed many of those pathways together, as I read this text, we need to ask for wisdom as a church. How do we continually look to seek God's wisdom to create those pathways within our church? What does that need to continue to look like? And I've got to tell you, whenever I'm asked a question, what is it about our church that I am most pleased with that sets us apart from other churches, as much as any other answer I love to give is that we are anchored to the gospel and we are thankful for the generational richness that we share together as a church. That matters here. It's reflected here. We're thankful for it. I mean, I'm not being too honest, but I'll just tell you, I've taken some bullet holes for that. I mean, we do what we need to do to come together as a church and be richly, generationally together so that we can reflect the truths that we find in passages like Titus chapter 2. We don't want this to be a text that unfortunately gets left out of our ecclesiology. It gets left out of our missiology. We don't even acknowledge the fact that when we come to this text, it is set within the context of a very dark world. There's a reason I had us dip into chapter 1. Because if we're really going to understand the premise of the message this morning, which, by the way, if you're looking for a blank, it's this. When all the church's generations help each other think rightly and live rightly, people without Christ take notice. They did on the island of Crete, and they do in Smyrna, Georgia. I dip back into chapter 1 because of Paul's letter to Titus. When we read of it, we need to understand the context that Paul is making his point. Beginning in verse 10, we learn that there are insubordinate false teachers that had infiltrated the church. And it says right here they need to be silenced, not because he's being mean, but it's because they are devastating the families of the church with their false teaching. Titus has written to believers who are living on an absolutely stunningly beautiful island of Crete, part of Greece in present day. It's out in the Mediterranean. It's a beach-lined island. It had 146 miles on, uh, from one side to the other. It's a beautiful place, but it's a place that was steeped in all kinds of confusion. There was all kinds of religious confusion there because this is the mythical birthplace of Zeus. So you can only imagine the type of worship that happened on the island of Crete. And along with the religious confusion of the day, there was also moral confusion. Cicero used to say of Crete, moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. So this is an island where people that lived under were all messed up. They didn't know which way was up from down. Religiously, they were messed up. Morally, they were messed up. So this island, though it was stunningly beautiful to look at, it was spiritually dark. And the darkness of the island was threatening to rob the church of its light. And Paul's answer to the darkness and the challenges that the church is facing is to call the people together of the church of all ages in a full orb all-on effort to do away with the darkness by helping each other grow into the likeness of what God wants them to do and what he calls them 
to be the answer to the challenge is what we find in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And look at how it begins, the first verse there. But as for you, don't succumb to the darkness, but work against it. And this is what he says, by teaching what accords with sound doctrine. So it starts by teaching the right things, that your thinking has to be gospel-informed thinking to answer the challenges of the darkness. And after he then alludes to the importance of teaching sound doctrine, the remainder of chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, they talk about then the way that is lived out in everyday life. Because if you're truly teaching sound doctrine, you'll be thinking in a gospel-informed way, but you'll be living then in a gospel-empowered way, which is much different than the darkness among the people of the island that they were found. So that gives you an understanding of what Paul is talking about. And his answer here is in this ecclesiological issue of the importance of the older and the younger always being together, helping one another, encouraging one another to be the godly people that God is calling them to be. That's what this text is all about. How can we do what Thomas Jefferson did? How do we think it's okay to split everyone up and never find an answer as the commentator says, somehow to get everybody together? We need those pathways. God designed it that way. To not do this this way is to be unnatural. It's to go against what God intended his bride to be. So if we're going to understand this rightly, we need to step into these verses and understand what it really means for all the church's generations to help each other, to think and to live rightly. And when we do that, people without Christ, they see something that is so strikingly different than the world around them. Of course it is. This is light against darkness. Everyone then takes notice. What is it about them that's so sincerely different than anything else we've ever experienced? I don't know the full answer, but there's something different there. When you come to Titus chapter 2 and it opens the need to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then it begins to unpack that by talking to older men and older women and younger women and younger men. So let's start with older men. That's where the text starts. Look at verse 2. Older men, if you want to stand against the darkness, if you want to be a man who lead our church in a way that you understand your role, it starts here because for older men there is no safety net. No one else you can lean on. Those who are older and mature in the faith, this is where it all begins. It is imperative of the older men of the church to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. What does that all mean? What does it mean to be sober-minded? It means that you are wise in all of your judgments. You're clear on the matters that matter the most. You're clear on how to make godly choices, and you're decisive when those choices are before you. You know how to use your talents and your gifts and your money and all of your energy for the purposes of God. The main dictum, the north star of your life, is this. Only one life will soon be passed, but only what's done for Christ will last. Nothing else matters. I just want every ounce of my being to please Jesus. I want to be ready when I meet him. I want to draw others to be ready and influence them in all the rightful ways 
too. That's what it means to be sober-minded, to be dignified, worthy of respect, to be self-controlled, to not be a person given over to brash jokes or to say things that are suspect or, or out of bounds. All this needs and requires the grace of God to live in our lives in this way, but there is integrity here. Passions are rendered under control. What all of this means is that perceivable characteristics of your life is that you know Jesus, you've been walking with him, much like what was said of the early apostles in the book of Acts. Remember what was said of them? When they talked about him, they must have been with Jesus. Everybody knows when they're around you, you're a person who walks with Jesus when you live your life this way. And when I think of the men in our church that are examples of this, can I tell you there are many. I could call out several. But aren't you thankful for men in our church like Ken Travis? Aren't you thankful for his ministry, his love for you, for the way that he serves in so many ways, how we learn so much from a Ken Travis who walks in the grace of God to demonstrate these things, these qualities in our lives. I'm not looking at them because I don't want to embarrass them. But I'm so grateful for men like that who are walking in godliness, who are setting the example for the remainder of us. And I'm so grateful for guys, men of the faith, who are so strong and sound. They're walking with Jesus this way. Then it deals with older women. They reach down younger women. Here's the point. Older men, showcase the power of the gospel. Here's your blank. I'm sorry, I didn't give it to you. Showcase the power of the gospel in the way that you live. You've been walking with Jesus. He's changed you. Receivable. Everybody knows it. Then to older women, reach down to younger women to help them walk with Jesus. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, it says in verse 3. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. So train the young women. Listen to that. Older women are to reach down and show younger women how to walk with Jesus. I hope you see the wisdom in this. The discipleship happens when men disciple men and women disciple women. It protects us. It's a protection against anything that would be suspect and would cause a weakness because of some sexual problem. It's, it's so clear that this is intentional. There's wisdom in how Paul has drafted it up. And older women are to be reverent in behavior. That means holiness defines her life. She always behaves in a way that is fitting for the temple. How you see her worshiping in the temple, the same way that you see her in the public arena or wherever she might be. Holiness is a part of her life. It's only perfectly demonstrated by the God that she loves. And she wants her life to reflect his holiness in all that she does. So out of the depth of her love for God, she lives a life that's holy. There's no slander on her lips. We all know how words have immense power. How you can use your words to devastate others. Don't think that's just face-to-face contact. Text messages do that. Emails do that. Social media, when you're hot and angered and bothered, they do that. And the Cretans were devastating whole families with their words, and the older women need to not be like the Cretans. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Only what's good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Not slaves to wine. They don't want to hurt their witness. 
And can I just say, I could say a lot more. It's not saying that drinking wine is a sin, but the way that I live, if you never partake, you never have to worry about it. And if you are filled with anything, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled up. Be drunk on the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God control you. He continues to go on, and he's got these other wonderful qualities that you can take your time to kind of walk through. Not slanderers, not slaves to much wine, and teachers of that which is good. So older women notice. As it transitions from older women to younger women, the transition is something you have something to do with. You are to teach these things. You're not to just bottle up all this godliness for yourself. You're to teach it to the young women. And when I think about young women and old women, the type of women that younger women can look up to, I told you how much I love Ken Travis as an older man. Aren't you thankful? For Carol Dunbar? Did you know that Carol Dunbar is just doing all that she can to leverage her life for the glory of Jesus? It is not hardly a week that goes by that I don't see the fruit of the things that she does. I'm so blessed. When she sees someone hurting in the community, she can't help but stop and make a difference. When she has a friend of hers who's Grieving the loss of a loved one, she'll spend time with them. When, when Carol Dunbar sees that we have wonderful college students who come to our church, she opens up her house after church for lunch, and they affectionately now know her as Grandmama C because it's happened more than once, and she just loves on them. She cares for them. She doesn't surprise us that her daughter Teresa is on the mission field that we pray for in Eleuthera. I praise God for women in our church like Carol Dunbar. Older women who have so much to offer and to teach the younger women. And then as we continue to, to read, younger women, God calls you, according to this text, to befriend older women. Why? So they can disciple you. So those younger women can be trained up by the older women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands. The Word of God won't be reviled. So older women reach down to younger women to teach them how to walk with Jesus. Younger men, women befriend older women so that they can disciple them. So they can help them learn how to love their husbands. Because I know that I am a wonderful man sometimes. <laughs> and there are plenty of times that it's probably hard for Allie to love me as a Wife is to love the children. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Because while I'm striving to become more and more like Jesus, there are times that I've got to grow in the Lord. And when younger women are looking at the realities of being godly and faithful in the home, to have older women that have been there, to say, love him through it. Continue to stay faithful. Stay in the word. Let that be your source of strength. To be an encouragement in those hard times. To be one that they can go to to ask questions of. They can learn how to love their husbands. To love their children. And when it talks about how you are in the home, whether you're a mom who makes the home your primary occupation or whether you have an occupation outside of the home with another profession and you're striving to prioritize your 
husband and your children like this text calls you to, to make it the priority that you need. You need to have someone alongside of you who's been down those roads that you can call on when things get difficult and they get hard. How do you love your husband when he struggles? How do I love him when I struggle? How do you love your children when you love them so much and you just want to slap them sometimes? I mean, how do you how do you not how do you just love them all the time? How do you love your husband? How do you love your children through those difficult moments? Those, those are important things to go to someone who's been there and done that and listen. If they don't know the answer to give you, they know how to pray for God to show you what the answer is. Younger women, they need this within the church. They need to befriend older women so they can be discipled. And younger men, well, look at what it says of you. It says many things. Younger men in verse 6, be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. To teach with integrity and dignity. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. Self-controlled. That means you honor what it says in Proverbs 4.23. Your guard, your heart above all things. Become a model of good works. You're an example for others to follow. You teach with integrity and dignity. There's purity in your motive, in your manner, and how you're living. And listen, sometimes the gospel is hard for people who are lost to receive it because it means they have to submit their life to the lordship of Jesus and repent of their sin and turn away from it and follow him. There is something combative about the gospel message, just at what it is. It means you have to change. So when you share the gospel with others, if they reject it, make sure they're rejecting the message and not the messenger because you've brought dishonor to the Lord. He says that you're living in a way, it says at the end of that verse. You don't offend others unnecessarily. So they have nothing evil to say about you. So younger men, when you're living your life this way, and you're seeking out the counsel and the mentorship of older men, younger men resolve to make their mentors proud. And that's how they want to live. So many of the things that describe the life of older men, well, they're the descriptions of younger men too. I want to give you a few takeaways. When I think about how to apply these truths of, these, of this passage, how, how do we do it? Well, the first thing you have to ask yourself while you're there is which category do you fall into? I'm not going to ask, ask you to raise your hand and tell me you're an older man or woman. It might get me in hot water. But I think it's important that right now you ask yourself the question. He's speaking to four different groups. Who am I? Where do I fit? What passage is designed for me? And as you're asking yourself that question, I'm praying that the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart right now and letting you know where it is that you fall. And let me give you something that will be a help to you. If you right now, as you're reading this, know in your heart that you're at a place in your walk with Jesus and maturity in Him that you have much to offer and you're one of the older men and women in the text. Because you need to be teaching and giving that off to someone in your life. And if as you're listening to this, you're in the middle of the busyness and the life is just wild and hairy and it's challenging. You half laugh when I talked about the days you love your kids but you want to smack them and 
You're like, I know what that is. That's why I'm laughing. Can I just tell you, if you're right now in your heart of hearts, the Spirit of God is showing that you need a friend who's mature in the faith to come alongside of you and help you grow into what God wants you to be. That's the answer to the question, which camp do I fall into? And as you're thinking that way, can I just give you another few nuggets? When you're thinking about Titus 2 and this dynamic of the church, I really believe it's a helpful thing to think of this text this way. Every single one of us at every moment in our lives should always have a Paul and a Timothy in our life. And when I say that, why do I say that? If you know the relationship of Paul and Timothy, Paul mentored Timothy. So there's plenty of times that you need a mentor, a Paul in your life, that you reach out to, that's been ahead of you, that you can turn to and get trusted counsel from. Everybody needs a Paul and you need a Timothy, someone that you're pouring into that's looking to you in that way. And can I tell you, that's a sliding scale. If you're nine years old and you're running around the neighborhood and you know Jesus, Hannah, that means your seven-year-old buddy needs you to be someone that she looks up to. And that means that you, Hannah, need to have sisters and other people in your life that you're looking up to. That means that our middle school students have high schoolers to look up to. Our, middle, our high school students, it's incumbent upon you to look for those who are younger uh, than you and spend time getting to know them and care for them that way. You see how it works. No matter where we are in life, right now, I'm so thankful for men in my life that I spend time with. Mel Blackaby at First Baptist Jonesboro, who's just been a brother to me, who's ahead of me in the faith, and I'm grateful for him and the time we spend together. Tim McCoy at Ingleside Baptist Church in Macon, who I drove down there just a few weeks ago just to spend time with him. He prepared a full five-course lunch for me in his office through his church chef, and we sat there and we talked about ministry. We should always have a Paul in our life, and we should always have a Timothy at any given time that we're poured into. So who's yours? Something else you need to think about in this text. Every one of us should, should remember this, that we get stretched the most when we're out of our comfort zone. Now, how many of you find it a little uncomfortable when you're one of the older men and women and you're called to reach down into the lives of the younger? It requires you to face the fact that you might not be reciprocated the way that you might expect. Or it might require a little continuation on your part. Maybe the first time that you call again. You call again. You don't get offended too quickly. I think about a dear woman in the first church that I pastored. She was so upset because she was reaching out on the telephone to call one of the younger women in the church, and they would not return her call. And it wasn't until she understood that it's not that she did that. She didn't answer anyone's calls. And she got her feelings hurt by something that shouldn't have ever done that. And only through persistently pursuing that woman, that younger woman, did they build a relationship that was nurturing, became what Titus 2 called it to be. Sometimes you've got to reach out of your comfort zone. You've got to make room at the table on Wednesday night supper for someone else to talk to. You don't just get around the same folks every single week. That's comfortable, but that doesn't allow for Titus 2, for the older women and the younger women to grow together, the older men and younger women to grow together, so we find ways to stretch ourselves a little bit, to get out of our comfort zone, so that we fight against the darkness of the world, and do you see how vital this is? It's not optional. 
something I learned from Mark DeMoz in his book on how to build a multi-ethnic church. He uses a concept I want to share with you, assimilation and accommodation. There's a difference in the two. Assimilation means this. We invite others to do what we like to do. We want them to come. We want them to be a part of our lives. So we do something and we offer an invitation for others to come and join us in it. That's helpful, but accommodation is even better. Accommodation says, I love that person enough that I'm going to find out what they enjoy doing, and I'm going to get where they are and do it there. Now, I was thinking about a practical way to talk about this. We've, for many years, our church held, it's been a while, but we held a, a wonderful men's golf scramble at a golf retreat, and the men would all show up at a state park, and we'd have that time together, and the men would have a great time. What I've learned about our church that is interesting is some of our older men really love to play golf. I like to play golf. I guess I'm an older man. But then some of our, I play it like three times a year. I'm terrible at it, but I like it when I go. Some of the younger men in the church, they don't play golf. They play disc golf. Cheaper. They can go. They have fun. Some of our younger men, they even have places. They have the buckets in their, or the baskets in their backyard. They, they practice. That's how they, they love to go out and do that. So when I think about future men's golf retreats at our church, we need to go to places like the place we've gone historically that has both. And one day, let's enjoy time together on the golf course. The other day, let's go play disc golf together. Let's do the things that the other would rather do. Why? Because we're going to be richer, not because of the activity, but because of the time we got to spend with each other in doing it. We've got to think more accommodation, folks, than we think assimilation. How do we live in a way that, listen to this, this will convict you, that the person is more important than the activity? Because at the end of the day, isn't that what matters most? So we think about accommodation more than assimilation. Here's something else. We learn to love the person. I've already said it more than the activity. Okay, I said it. Here's the next one. We love the harmony of our relationships in the church more than the harmony being sung in our sanctuary. This is all about understanding that when we come together as one body, there's a sensitivity to everyone who's in the room. That if we're one, of, of one, of one heart and mind, as it says in Acts 4, if we have the attitude of Jesus, our older members love and celebrate a praise song, and our younger members love and celebrate a hymn in our worship service. And we delight in it because we're thinking about others and we're entrusting ourselves to the church that they're thinking about us too. Practical way I like to explain that, it's kind of like turkey and dressing at Thanksgiving. Can I just tell you, and I know you're about to prove me wrong, don't raise your hand and say it's true, but I have rarely met a person, there we go, I've rarely met a person that tells me that turkey and dressing is their absolute favorite meal. Rarely met someone who says that. They say other things. They never say they don't like it. They say, I've rarely met someone that says turkey and dressing is their favorite meal. And when I think about an analogy for church, even though analogies fall flat, I, I do want you to know, it's kind of like turkey and dressing we come together as a church. Because listen, at the end of the day, turkey and dressing is good enough for everybody at Thanksgiving because it's not about the food, it's about the people at the table. We care more about the harmony of our church, the sensitivity of all of us being together. 
the place where we miss it if there's ever a day that there's a lack of sensitivity to that reality. But that's just the way it's got to be for us to be a Titus 2 church. We care about that. And so we're always looking for common ground. It's one of the things you do if you're living your life this way. You're always thinking, if you're a single woman, how can I find common ground even if I'm talking to a woman that has children because maybe I've got a little margin in my life to give a help to them if they need someone to take a little few minutes of a break or to run an errand that they'd otherwise wouldn't be able to run. Common ground, older single women to help the younger women who are in that same place in life. You're always looking for common ground. And as you're looking for common ground, can I just make an obvious observation? Here's common enough for everybody. Everybody in this church loves to eat somewhere, right? So you don't have to really pick your brain over it. At the end of church, when we leave this door, find someone and say, why don't we go to lunch together today? See what the Lord does with that. You know, something that I'm not even sure with the staff that I'm dreaming of that we're going to do periodically during the course of a year is on Sundays, we're going to fill out a place to where you can come and just sign up to go to lunch. And we're going to match people up by random matching as a who's going to lunch with who. So we're going to advertise it, who's going to lunch today, and you don't know till you get to church. And then you show up at church, you find out, and you go to Zaxby's, or you go over here to Nukes, or you go wherever you go, and you have a good time together. Tasty China, I like that place a lot. Just think about these things. Titus chapter 2 matters. The younger and the older, helping each other because we need each other so much. And that's how God intended the church to be. We don't want this to be a big deletion. Unsurprisingly, Thomas Jefferson wasn't the first to try to whittle away his Bible. And many have done so ever since. Especially when they try to separate the historical Jesus from his deity. And as Albert Schweitzer noted over a century ago, listen to this. Those looking for a merely historical Jesus, now listen to this, you've got to think to understand where I'm going, but listen to this. Those who are looking for a merely historical Jesus are like persons who are staring into a well, thinking they have discovered an historical figure, but are in truth seeing only their own reflection. When we ignore Titus chapter 2, we find all other ways to do church that never lets the generations grow to become what God intended us to be. We might occasionally look at it and we think we've found something, but all we're seeing is a reflection of ourselves. We need this. I'll keep taking bullet holes if I have to for it. I love what God is doing in our church. I deeply need people to pour into me who's been there before. I need to bring along those who are underneath me. It's a constant rhythm of our lives that we need to pay attention to and be involved in. This isn't an optional thing. If you love Jesus, you want to be obedient to him. It's right here in Titus chapter 2. Let's do that. I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. All of this is a reflection of the gospel.
The reason we do this is because of the beauty of Jesus. And when we see what Christ has done, it's so captivating and beautiful, the way that it transforms the church into being what we need to be. We just want to reflect him in all ways. We want to be the bride that is ready for his return. And that means when we face the darkness of our world, we need each other. We need each other deeply to help each other grow into what you want us to be. We need to be looking for pathways to make that happen. We need to be looking for it in our own individual lives. God, show us how to be the congregation, the church, the bride, the called out ones, the ecclesia that you want us to be for your glory. Father, if there's anyone here today who is captivated by the beauty of the gospel, I hope that they'll understand that how this all begins is when they transfer all their hope and trust and put it in Jesus. And as we live with you as our Lord and you as our Savior, it changes everything about us, all of our pursuits, so that we're ready to meet you one day. We just want to glorify you. And if there's anyone here without a relationship with him, I'm just praying that God would save you. That you'll see your deep need for him. That you'll understand that you're hopeless without him. You can't do enough good to ever balance the scales. You're deserving of punishment forever. But in Christ, we have what we need. We receive Jesus' righteousness because of what he did for us on the cross. And if you'll turn to him and trust in him, repent of your sin, it'll all begin. He'll change you into what he wants you to be and bring you into agreement with his design for your life. Father, I thank you for our wonderful church, what you're doing in our midst right here. I thank you for the beauty of our congregation, for men and women who love you, want to grow in you. I pray that you'll teach us how to do that even more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.